Hi, everyone. Right off the top of the bat, I'm very grateful for the responses that I've received from my listeners on my first Pelias episode. Many of you have professed changes of heart vis-a-vis this opera, for which I'm very grateful. I don't see how this second part of the Pelias episode cannot reflect what has been going on in the country of my birth this past week. The codified and continuing oppression of women is something that we should all be concerned with. And in fact, it's something that is very clearly reflected in the plot of this opera. That's the first thing I have to say this morning. The second thing is this. I often spend much time on this podcast looking way back into the past for subject matter for the podcast. But I'm very happy today to also be able to present to you an exceptional present-day singer who recently sang his first Peleas and who, I think, has already joined the ranks of the great interpreters of that role. That is the young lyric baritone Hugh Montague Rendell. I will be featuring numerous excerpts from his recent performance of Peleas in Rouen over the course of this episode. So just as a little teaser, here he is in Peleas's first entrance when he asks his grandfather permission to go visit his dying friend, Marcellus. Finally, as always, I'm very grateful for the support that many of you have lent this podcast via my Patreon page. I've already produced, I believe it's now 36 bonus episodes for my Patreon subscribers. And if I can get my you-know-what together this weekend, I'll also be putting out an extra Peleas episode featuring live performances of this opera. For those of you who wish to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash countermelody where you can make a monthly contribution anywhere from $2 on up or a yearly contribution for anywhere from $25 on up. And you will gain access to all of that bonus material. I keep saying I'm going to be doing more with the Patreon account. I'm a very slow mover. I'm sure you guys have noticed that. But once I say I'm going to do something, I really do do it. It just sometimes takes me a while. So thank you again for your continuing support. And now on with today's episode. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each. 
but the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me. We concluded last week's episode with an extended scene from the end of Act Two of the opera. And today we're going to journey through Acts Three, Four, and Five. Act Three begins with what I think is the most erotic love scene in all of opera, and that is the so-called tower scene where Peleas and Melisande encounter each other at different levels. Melisande is in her bedroom, which is in a tower looking out over the grounds of the castle. She's brushing out her hair for the night, and her hair, if you recall, is very, very, very long. Peleas comes by, tells her that He's leaving tomorrow. This brings up a theme that occurs throughout this opera, the theme of travel and of escape and of attempted flight that doesn't really lead anywhere except perhaps to the grave, but we'll get to that in a minute. As Melisande is reaching out of the tower to give Peleas her hand, her hair tumbles down over the side of the tower, and Peleas has an ecstatic and highly sensual response to her tresses surrounding him. They are interrupted by the arrival of Golo, who is outraged and drags Peleas off with him to, well, we'll find out where they're going in a moment. I want to talk about the recording that I'm featuring for this excerpt. It is once again the 1941 wartime recording, the premiere recording of the complete opera on disc, conducted exceptionally by Roger Desormières with the Peleas of Jacques Janson, whom we met last week, and opposite a Mélisande that we have not yet encountered, Irène Joachim. Joachim was the granddaughter of the legendary violinist Joseph Joachim. She lived from 1913 to 2001. At the time of the Peleas recording, she, like Janson, was 28 years old and in the full bloom of youth. Her early musical training was as a violinist and a pianist, but after an unhappy first marriage, she gave up her musical aspirations. But thank goodness, in the early 1930s, she began studying again and, in fact, also took up voice. She was a student of, among others, Suzanne Sebron-Viseur, who, if any of you remember from my Régine Crespin episode ages ago, was also a teacher of Crespin, as well as the controversial soprano Germaine Lubin, whom we heard a few weeks ago in my Puccini en Français episode. Joachim is an amazingly vivid Mélisande. 
Like Janson, she gives primary attention to the text and is fully committed to making every word comprehensible and thus infusing it with kaleidoscopic shades of meaning. She studied the role with Mary Garden, the first Melisande, yet she found herself a bit at cross-purposes with Garden, who felt that the opera was a tragic love story between Peleas and Melisande. Joachim's take on this was that if Melisande is in love with anything or anybody, she's in love with death, and the attraction to Peleas is a means to achieve that goal. It's a very interesting way of interpreting the role, I think. Anyway, the thing about this opera is that you need to have the interplay of text and drama. And it's the drama that is so often lost in performances of this opera that shroud the entire proceedings in this lugubrious cloud of impressionism. But Desormières drives the orchestra, not excessively, but in a way that puts the drama at the forefront. I think it creates an extraordinarily exciting recording. We're going to hear another excerpt from it later on, but this, I think, is perhaps, well, it's one of the peaks of this recording. Je vois tes cheveux dénoués Je suis affreusement 
Cheveux descendent vers moi, toute ta chevelure, Mélisande, toute ta chevelure est tombée de la tombe. Je les tiens dans les mains, je les tiens dans la bouche. Dans les bras, je les mets autour de mon cou. Je n'ouvrirai plus les mains cette nuit. Laisse-moi, laisse-moi, tu vas me faire tomber. Non, non, je n'ai jamais. Oh, 
s'il tombait du ciel. Je ne vois plus le ciel à travers tes cheveux. Tu vois, tu vois, mes deux mains ne peuvent plus détenir. Il y en a jusque sur les branches du saule. Ils vivent comme des oiseaux dans mes mains. Ils m'aiment, ils m'aiment plus que toi. Laisse-moi, laisse-moi, quelqu'un pourrait venir. Non, 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 je ne te délivre pas cette nuit. Et ma prisonnière cette nuit, toute la nuit, toute la dans l'obscurité. Vous ne savez pas qu'il est tard. 
Jouez pas ainsi dans l'obscurité, vous êtes des enfants. Quels enfants Quels enfants As Golo just now, we briefly heard the French bass baritone of Basque origin, Henri Bertrand Echeverry, who lived from 1900 to 1960. We will be encountering him again at the end of Act 3. For now, I do want to expose you further to the marvelous artistry of Hugh Montague Rendell in two very brief excerpts from the tower scene. David, my esteemed not-boyfriend and I, encountered Hugh Montague Rendell a few years ago here in Berlin when he sang Marcello in Berikowski's high-concept production of La Boheme. Even before the curtain went up, I noticed the name of this singer in the program, and I said to David, I think I know who this is, because I knew that the mezzo-soprano Diana Montague and the tenor David Rendell, two of the finest singers of their generation, were married, and I suspected that this young man was, in fact, their offspring, which proved to be the case. This young man has clearly absorbed the lessons of his two esteemed parents and is, I would submit, one of the brightest lights on the operatic firmament today. His Marcello was superb, as is his Peleas. One thing that makes him so special is that his voice is so connected to his body, and he sings with an extraordinary amount of both textual clarity and seamless legato, something that I really miss in so many of today's young singers. So anyway, let's just hear him in two very short excerpts. This is as Melisande's tresses have just descended over the tower, and he sings the words, Oh, qu'est-ce que c'est? qu'est-ce que c'est? Tes cheveux, tes cheveux descendent vers moi. Toute ta chevelure, Mélisande, toute ta chevelure,
as Peleas begins tying Melisande's hair to the branches of the willow tree which he has climbed in order to get closer to her. want to say one word, well, maybe a few words, about Wagner and the French fascination and repulsion with Wagner. Debussy was merely one of many composers, including Chausson, Dindy, Forêt, Duparc, who were all influenced, deeply influenced, by the music of Wagner. Debussy makes use of light motifs, especially in the interludes that link one scene to another within Peleas's acts. We're not hearing much of those interludes today because they don't contain vocal music, but they are among the most beautiful bits of music in this opera. But Debussy does not make use of leitmotif in the way that Wagner does. You can't really attach very specific names to most of these leitmotifs, and if you did, you would be cheapening their effect, I think. It's also been suggested that Mussorgsky, and specifically Boris Godunov, was a huge influence on Debussy as well when he was composing Peleas. Also a little bit of food for thought for my friends out there. Further to the idea of text setting in this opera, I also want to highlight 
the way that the shape of the melodic line is dictated by the inflection of the spoken language. This is something that one encounters in early opera, in Monteverdi, for example, but which becomes less and less a thing as one gets into bel canto opera, where words have a different kind of relationship to the music. I think that Debussy also influenced a composer as far-flung stylistically as Janacek, who also sets the cadence of the Czech language with such acuity. It's quite similar, in fact, to what Debussy is doing in Peleas, although, of course, the style of music is so completely different. Anyway, enough lecturing. I always say I'm not going to do a lot of lecturing, so let's get on with the next scene, shall we? This is the scene in which Golot takes Peleas down to the subterranean vaults underneath the castle and makes him lean down over a chasm from which the scent of death is rising. This is a creepy scene, I admit, but still not the creepiest scene of the opera. And while we're talking about creepiness, let's just talk about Edgar Allan Poe, because Debussy, as so many other French figures from the time were, was fascinated with Edgar Allan Poe. In fact, you may remember that he attempted operas on two subjects from Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher and Less prominently and famously and completely the devil in the belfry. This scene allows us to return to that exceptional recording from 1978 featuring Serge Boudou conducting and Gabriel Paquier as Golot. We also are now introduced to a new Peleas. That is the French baritone Claude Dormois. I engaged in an exchange a number of years ago with my friend, the great Craig Rutenberg, regarding Claude Dormois, about whom I knew absolutely nothing. According to Craig, he was the great French hope in the late 1970s for a resurrection, almost, of the French school of singing that was in severe decline since the days of Crespin and others. Unfortunately, this exceptional artist died before the age of 35 of leukemia. Evidently, Craig didn't remember the exact particulars, but this took place not long after this recording was made. Craig told me how he and Claude went into the Radio France studio to record some Melodie of Forêt, and he remembered it being a really exceptional experience. What I like about Dormois is that he has a much more virile, masculine voice than some of the Peleases that we've heard. But nevertheless, he is capable of that same linguistic refinement. It makes for a really exceptional recording and performance. And, of course, I've already spoken about Serge Boudou last week, who also 
is a figure who may not be so well remembered today, but was a very, very, very important personage in international musical life, not just French, in the years that he was active. It is one of the peculiarities of our business that sometimes when an artist dies tragically young, as in the case, of course, of Kathleen Ferrier, that that artist is revered and remembered to the degree to which they deserve, but that in the case of someone like Claude Dormois, he is virtually forgotten today. And that pains me, so I'm happy to be able to present him to you today. So here is the brief scene, Act 3, Scene 2. Renegarde. Parisi, Parisi. Vous n'avez jamais pénétré dans ces souterrains-ci une fois dans le temps, mais il y a longtemps. Eh bien, voici l'eau stagnante dont je vous parlais. Sentez-vous l'odeur de mort qui monte? Allons jusqu'au bout de ce rocher qui surplombe et penchez-vous un peu. Elle viendra vous frapper au visage. Penchez-vous, n'ayez pas peur, je vous tiendrai. Donnez-moi. Non, non, pas la main. Elle pourrait glisser. Le bras. Voyez-vous le gouffre. Péléos, Péléos Last week, I played one of my favorites, the Swiss baritone Charles Ponserat, in Act 3, Scene 3, the scene in which Golot and Peleas emerge from underneath the castle into the noonday sun blazing in the sky, shining upon the waves in the distance and Peleas sings of his great relief at being able to breathe again. Once again, I'm going to play Hugh Montague Rendell's performance of this, which took place live in Rouen in January 2021. Il y a là des rimides lourds comme une rosée de plomb et des ténèbres épaisses comme une pâte empoisonnée. Et maintenant, tout l'air de toute la veine, il y a vos frais, voyez, frais comme une feuille qui vient de s'ouvrir sur la petite lame verte. Terrasse, 
Now it's time for us to revisit that classic Desormières recording and encounter what I consider to be, well, one of the two creepiest scenes, anyway, in this opera. That is the scene between Golot and his small son, Ignold. Golot, consumed by mounting jealousy and irrationality, grills his young son, Ignold, about the relationship between Peleas and Mélisande. Ignold tells him that they frequently argue about the door, whether it should be left open or closed. Then Golo asks if they ever kiss. Ignold tells him no, but then remembers, oh yes, they did one time, one time when it was raining, and Golo makes him demonstrate how they kissed each other. Ignold observes that Melisande has just lit her lamp, which is seen through her bedroom window, and Golot says, Would you like to see your mother? Why don't you climb up on my shoulders and you tell me what's going on there? And when he finds out that Peleas is in the room as well, he demands to know what is going on, and Ignold, confused and increasingly terrified, says, They're just sitting there, looking at the light and not moving. Finally, Golot, unable to restrain himself any longer, drags Ignold off as the act ends. A word about the casting of the part of Ignold, generally portrayed by a soprano. Once in a while, they put a boy in the part, and now these days they've been putting countertenors into it. And I can say, as a countertenor, that I think it's a really bad idea. But nevertheless, you guys go do your thing, and I will do mine, which is, these days, podcasting. So, as a good podcaster, I want to tell you a little bit about Echeverry. He was a bass baritone who was, again, of Basque origin and lived from 1900 to 1960. He is the extraordinary Golot in this recording, and he also reprised the part under the baton of Désiré Émile Ingelbrecht in that 1951 recording with Camille Moran and Suzanne Donco that we heard last week. His other roles included the Mephistopheli, if you will, of both Gounod and Berlioz, as well as some Wagner, including Wotan, and Boris Godunov. But, like Gérard Souzet, who studied the role under him, he was most celebrated for his Golot. His is both a nuanced and an extremely volatile performance that gains extraordinary power as his rage mounts. As Ignold, we hear the exceptionally interesting soprano, Leila Ben Sedira, who lived from 1903 to 1982. Therefore, at the time of this recording, Golot was only three years older than his son. She was born in Algiers, 
and was the granddaughter of Belkacem ben Sedira, who was a scholar, professor, and linguist of extraordinary importance in the codifying of Berber languages through the composer Camille Saint-Saëns, who was a friend of her family, as well as, dare I say, a friend of who knows what gorgeous young men down in Algiers, which is, I guess, one reason he visited there so frequently. <laughs> he gave her her first piano lessons, and in fact, she began as a pianist and eventually dedicated herself to opera and also, quite interestingly, to early performances of French Baroque opera in the 1930s and 40s. The war interrupted her career, which she was able to resume in part in the 1950s. She also was an esteemed voice teacher following her retirement from her active singing career. I think she's one of the best ignolds that I have ever heard. This is not an easy role to carry off, but she does it with great aplomb. nous allons nous asseoir ici, Viens sur mes genoux Nous verrons d'ici ce qui se passe dans la forêt Je ne te vois plus du tout depuis quelque temps Tu m'abandonnes aussi Tu es toujours chez petite mère Nous sommes tout juste assis sous les fenêtres de petite mère Elle fait peut-être sa prière du soir en ce moment Mais dis-moi, ignore, elle est souvent avec ton oncle Pelléas, n'est-ce pas Oui, oui, toujours, petit père Vous n'êtes pas là. Tiens, quelqu'un passe avec une lanterne dans le jardin. Mais on m'a dit qu'il ne s'aimait pas. Il paraît qu'il se querelle souvent. Non, est-ce vrai? Oui, oui, c'est vrai. Oui. Ah, ah. Mais à propos de quoi se querelle-t-il À propos de la porte. Comment À propos de la porte. Est-ce que tu racontes le Parce qu'elle ne peut pas être ouverte. Qui ne veut pas qu'elle soit ouverte Voyons pourquoi se querelle-t-il Je ne sais pas, petit père. À propos de la lumière. Je ne te parle pas de la lumière, je te parle de la porte. Ne mets pas ainsi la main dans la bouche, voyons. Petit père, petit père, je ne le ferai plus. Voyons, pourquoi pleures-tu maintenant Qu'est-il arrivé Oh, oh, petit père, vous m'avez fait mal. Je t'ai fait mal. Je fais mal, c'est sans le vouloir. Ici, ici, à mon petit bras. C'est sans le vouloir, voyons, 
ne pleure plus, je te donnerai quelque chose demain. Quoi Un carboise et des flèches. Mais dis-moi ce que tu sais de la porte. De grandes flèches Oui, de très grandes flèches. Mais pourquoi ne veulent-ils pas que la porte soit ouverte Voyons, réponds-moi à la fin. Non, non, n'ouvre pas la bouche pour pleurer. Je ne suis pas fâché. De quoi parle-t-il quand ils sont ensemble Oui, de quoi parle-t-il De moi, toujours de moi. Et que disent-ils de toi Je suis ici comme un aveugle qui cherche son trésor au fond de l'océan. Je suis ici comme un nouveau-né perdu dans la forêt. Et vous Mais voyons, Ignold, j'étais distrait. Nous allons causer sérieusement. Ces petites mères ne parlent-ils jamais de moi quand je ne suis pas là Si, si, petit père Ah, et que disent-ils de moi Ils disent que je deviendrai aussi grand que vous. Tu es toujours près d'eux Oui, oui, toujours un petit père. Ils ne te disent jamais d'aller jouer ailleurs Non, petit père. Ils ont peur quand je ne suis pas là. Ils ont peur. À quoi vois-tu qu'ils ont peur Ils pleurent toujours dans l'obscurité. Oh Cela fait pleurer aussi. Oui, oui. Elle est pâle, petit père. Oh Oh Patience, mon Dieu, patience. Quoi, petit père Rien, rien. Mon enfant, j'ai vu passer un loup dans la forêt. Il s'embrasse quelquefois, non. Qu'il s'embrasse, petit père, non, non. Ah, si, petit père, si, une fois, une fois qu'il pleuvait. Ils se sont embrassés, mais comment, comment se sont-ils embrassés Comme ça, petit père, comme ça Ah ah, votre barbe, petit père, elle pique, elle pique, elle devient toute grise, petit père, et vos cheveux aussi, tout gris. Petite mère a allumé sa lampe. Il fait clair, petit père. Il fait clair. Oui, il commence à faire clair. Allons-y aussi, petit père. Allons-y aussi. Où peux-tu aller? Où il fait clair, petit père. Non. 
restons encore un peu dans l'ombre. On ne sait pas, on ne sait pas encore. Je crois que Pelléa c'est fou. Non, petit père, il n'est pas fou, mais il est très bon. Veux-tu voir petite mère Oui, oui, je veux la voir. Ne fais pas de bruit. Je vais te hisser jusqu'à la fenêtre. Elle est trop haute pour moi, bien que je sois si grand. Ne fais pas le moindre bruit, petite mère aurait terriblement peur. La voiture est-elle dans la chambre Oui. Oh, il fait clair. Elle est seule. Oui. Non, non, mon oncle Pelléa s'y est aussi. Ce n'est rien, tais-toi, je ne le ferai plus. Regarde, regarde, ignore. J'ai trébuché. Par le plus bas, que font-ils Ils ne font rien, petit père. Sont-ils prêts l'un de l'autre Est-ce qu'ils parlent Non, petit père, ils ne parlent pas. Mais que font-ils Ils regardent la lumière. Tous les deux Oui, petit père. Ils ne disent rien. Non, petit père. Il ne s'approche pas l'un de l'autre. Mon petit père, il ne ferme jamais les yeux. J'ai terriblement peur. De quoi donc as-tu peur Regarde, regarde. Mon petit père, c'est mon étonne. Regarde. Oh, je vais crier, petit père. Laissez-moi les autres, laissez-moi les autres. Viens. Now we come to Act 4, which is really the centerpiece of this opera, as it contains two absolutely crucial and riveting and devastating scenes. It begins with a very short dialogue between Peleas and Melisande, who meet in passing in the castle. Peleas tells her that he is leaving that evening, and he must speak to her. Will she please come? to the park, that park where so long ago they sat at the fountain as she tossed her wedding ring into the air and eventually lost it. I'm going to present to you today the two singers and the conductor who first brought this piece to life for me when I was, God, I've told this story so many times now, but just a 10-year-old boy, really weird, looking for something that I didn't know what it was. And in finding this opera, I found myself, quite honestly. The conductor is Pierre Boulez, who led the 1969 production of the opera at Covent Garden. 
the Melisande is that extraordinary Swedish soprano, Elisabeth Söderström, who has been one of my artistic guiding lights ever since then. I met her once in passing in the rehearsal office at San Francisco Opera, and I was too timid and shy to tell her what she meant to me. I wish I had had the nerve. But nevertheless, I can tell you now, and I can also tell you, that the Peleas is that exceptional artist, George Shirley. I mentioned last week that there are exactly two tenors out there that I have ever heard in my life that I think do justice to this part. I think it's much better cast with a baritone or a bariton martin, that wonderful zwischenfach, if you will, that lies between baritone and tenor. But like the French-Canadian tenor Jean-Paul Genot, whom we heard at the end of last week's episode, George Shirley also had a sufficiently baritonal timbre to do justice to the lower end of this part, which is where most tenors simply fall apart. I did a big episode in honor of George Shirley's birthday last year, and it was my great honor to be in touch with him personally. And I don't dare say that he's a friend, but he is a person that I have been able to tell how much he meant and still means to me. I'm playing this scene for you because of the way he responds to Mélisande when she asks him where they shall meet that evening. And he says, dans le parc. And I have had George Shirley's inflection of that line in my head now for decades upon decades. I still can conjure it up in my mind's ear so vividly. And, of course, Pierre Boulez what's to be said. He hated opera on the one hand, and yet he revivified so many operatic masterpieces, from Debussy to Bartok to Schoenberg to Wagner to Janacek. Now that I've talked so long, here's the very brief Act 4, Scene 1. Shall 
Gérard Souzet and Françoise Augeas in Act 2, Scene 2 of the opera. And now I'm going to play for you the most shockingly violent scene of this opera, in which an increasingly deranged Golot encounters Mélisande and physically abuses her so violently in front of his own grandfather, dragging her by the hair across the room, making the sign of the cross with her hair, and screaming, Absalom, Absalom. It's absolutely terrifying. And Gérard Sousset does not shy away from the horror that Goulot visits upon Mélisande. I remarked last week on the childlike timbre of Françoise Augeas, and it's precisely this quality that makes this scene so painful to listen to. Also, the exceptional conducting of Désiré Émile Engelbrecht. This was a radio recording from November 1955. Also, very briefly, we hear as Arkel, the bass Roger Gosselin, who intones those crucial and heartbreaking words at the end of the scene. Si j'étais Dieu, j'aurais pitié du cœur des âmes. If I were God, I would have pity on the hearts of humanity. Elias, par ce soir, tu as du sang sur le front, as-tu fait? Rien, j'ai passé au travers d'une laie d'épines. Je ne veux pas que tu me touches, entends-tu? Attends! Je ne te parle pas. Où est mon épée? Je venais chercher mon épée. Ici, sur le prix. Apporte-la! On vient encore de trouver un pays sans mort de faim, le long de la mer. Qu'ils tiennent tous à mourir sous nos yeux. Eh bien, mon épée. Pourquoi tremblez-vous ainsi Je ne vais pas vous tuer. Je voulais simplement examiner la lame. Je n'emploie pas l'épée à ces usages. 
Pour toi m'examiner, vous comme un pauvre, je ne viens pas vous demander au monde. Vous espérez voir quelque chose dans mes yeux sans que je voie quelque chose dans les vôtres. Croyez-vous que je sache quelque chose Voyez-vous ces grands yeux On dirait qu'ils sont fiers d'être riches. Je n'y vois qu'une grande innocence. Une grande innocence. Ils sont plus grands que l'innocence. Ils sont plus purs que les yeux d'un agneau. Ils donneraient à Dieu des leçons d'innocence. Une grande innocence. Écoutez. J'en suis si près que je sens la fraîcheur de leurs cils quand ils clignent. Et cependant, je suis moins loin des grands secrets de notre monde que du plus petit secret de ses yeux. Une grande innocence, plus que de l'innocence. On dirait que les anges du ciel y célèbrent sans cesse un baptême. Je les connais, ces yeux, je les ai vus à l'œuvre. Fermez-les, fermez-les. Je vais les fermer pour longtemps. Ne mettez pas ainsi votre main à la gorge. Je dis une chose très simple. Je n'ai pas d'arrière-pensée. Si j'avais une arrière-pensée, pourquoi ne la dirais-je pas Ah ah Ne tâchez pas de fuir Ici Donnez-moi cette main. Ah Vos mains sont trop chaudes. Allez-vous-en, votre chair me dégoûte. Allez-vous-en. Il ne s'agit plus de fuir à présent. Vous allez me suivre à genoux, à genoux devant moi. Ah ah, vos longs cheveux servent enfin quelque chose. À gauche et puis à droite. À droite, et puis à gauche. Absalom! Absalom! En avant, en arrière, jusqu'à terre, jusqu'à terre. Vous voyez, vous voyez, je Comme il vous plaira, voyez-vous, je n'attache aucune importance à cela. 
Je suis trop vieux Et puis Je ne suis pas un espion J'attendrai le hasard Et alors Oh Alors Simplement parce que c'est l'usage Simplement parce que c'est l'usage Qu'a-t-il donc Il est ivre The scene that follows, we see Ignold alone in the park, very near where Peleas and Melisande are about to meet. He is attempting to extract his golden ball from underneath a rock. He hears a flock of sheep in the distance who appear to be in some sort of distress. He asks the shepherd what is going on, and the shepherd says, They're upset because this isn't the way to the stable. And what this means, of course, is that they are being led to the slaughter. I was so pleased to find yet another live recording of Ingelbrecht conducting, well, an excerpt from it anyway, I haven't found the complete recording, but it features that, and I use the word advisedly here, iconic French coloratura soprano, Madi Mesplé, who died almost exactly two years ago. I promised at the time when I did a brief tribute to her that I would be featuring her in her own episode, and that will finally be happening either next week or the week after. I haven't yet decided who's coming first, Gabrielle Baquier or Maddy Mesplé. I don't believe Mesplé ever sang Mélisande. She may have, but I don't think it quite suits her. The glory of her voice, the gold in her voice, lay in the upper stratosphere, and we will hear more of that. But as Ignold, her childlike timbre again makes her a very effective exponent of this part, and this was in the very early days of her career, in January 1958, that this radio performance took place. (laughs) 
Now, of course, we have the climactic love scene between Peleas and Melisande, where they finally confess their love for each other. They realize too late that Golot has followed Melisande into the park and has his sword, which he uses to murder his half-brother and to strike down his pregnant wife. Before I play the extended scene, I do want to play a further clip of Hugh Montague Rendell singing Peleas's monologue, followed by his ecstatic response to Melisande's whispered Je t'aime aussi. Il faut que tout finisse. J'ai joué comme un enfant autour du 
une chose que je ne soupçonnais pas. J'ai joué autour des pièges de la destinée. Qui est-ce qui m'a réveillé tout à coup? Jusqu'au fond de son cœur, il faut que je lui dise tout ce que je n'ai pas I don't think that it's at all inappropriate to compare and contrast the performance of this young singer with those of Claude Dormois and Camille Moran, whom we will both hear in the subsequent scene. We'll begin this sequence with Pelleas's monologue sung by Claude Dormois, joined by the Mélisande of Michel Comment, whom we heard last week. When we reach the words... On dirait que ta voix a passé sur la mer au printemps. I will cut to a recording from 1953, which was yet another early recording of the opera. 
In this excerpt, we will hear once again the French baritone Martin, Camille Moran, whom we heard last week. He is joined here by the French coratura soprano Janine Michaud, who I have not featured at all, I don't think, on the podcast, but who is so worthy of our intense appreciation. Like Miss Blay, she excelled in the stratospheric repertoire, but she had an even firmer middle voice that makes her really an exceptional melisande. She brings her very own personal touch to the role, and the conductor here, Jean Fournet, who was born in Rouen in 1913 and lived through 2008, he never reached the upper pinnacle that certain conductors of this era attained, and yet that was not because he was not an exceptional interpreter, as we will hear in the way that he drives this scene to its climactic and devastating conclusion. Oui, votre frère dormait. Il est tard, nous 
aussi depuis quand m'aimes-tu depuis Jusqu'ici, on dira qu'il a plu sur mon cœur. Tu dis cela si franchement, comme un ange qu'on interroge. Je ne puis pas le croire, Mélisande. Pourquoi m'aimerais-tu Mais pourquoi m'aimes-tu Est-ce vrai ce que tu dis Tu ne me trouves pas, tu ne mens pas un peu Pour me faire sourire Non, je ne mens jamais Je ne mens qu'à ton forêt Oh, comme tu dis cela Ta voix, ta voix Elle est plus fraîche et plus franche que l'eau 
Donne-moi, donne-moi tes mains, oh, tes mains sont petites. Je ne savais pas que tu étais si belle, je n'avais jamais rien vu d'aussi beau avant toi. J'étais inquiet, je cherchais partout dans la maison, je cherchais partout dans la campagne, et je ne trouvais pas la beauté. Et maintenant, je t'ai trouvé. Sous cet arbre, viens dans la lumière, nous ne pouvons pas voir combien nous sommes heureux. Personne. J'ai entendu du bruit. Je n'entends que ton cœur dans l'obscurité. J'ai entendu craquer les feuilles mortes. 
C'est le vent qui s'est tué tout à coup. Il est tombé pendant que nous nous embrassions. Elle s'enlace jusqu'au fond du jardin. the opera, Act 5 is in a single scene. It takes place in Mélisande's room. She is lying asleep, attended to by a doctor. Nearby are King Arkel and Golo, who is racked with guilt. Mélisande awakens and asks for the window to be opened. Golo begs the other two to leave him alone in the room with Mélisande, for he must speak to her. At first, it appears that he's asking for her forgiveness, but she, not knowing what has occurred, barely understands that there's anything to forgive. Golo asks her if she loved Peleas, and she says, yes, I did. Where is he? Which only sends Golo into more of a desperate tailspin. It's as if he is seeking to, to justify in his mind having committed this heinous act. Talk about toxic masculinity. You know, it's so interesting. Earlier this week, I made an Instagram post featuring the golos that we heard in last week's episode and stating that I thought that it was the most fully formed role in the opera and a character for whom we are to feel pity. And yet, even at the end, all he can do is see his act through the prism of his jealousy. He's seeking to justify in his mind the murders that he has committed. Very, very interesting. For the scene between Melisande and Golo, I have chosen a 1964 recording conducted by the Swiss conductor Ernest Ansermé. In the role of Melisande, we hear the Dutch soprano Erna Sporenberg. 
and as Golo, we hear the Canadian-born bass baritone George London. With his enormous voice, especially opposite Sporenberg's light, bell-like tones, the contrast is all the greater, and the contest between the two of them, at least physically speaking, seems completely unmatched. And yet, one wonders how much Mélisande actually remembers, and if she is seeking to punish Golot for his actions. It's one of the many unanswerable questions posed by this piece, which needs to be solved over and over with each new performance, production, recording. As Golot has demanded the truth from Mélisande, she repeats in a half-stupor, la vérité, la vérité, the very words that Peleas used with her at the end of Act Two, Scene One. Mélisande, as-tu pitié de moi, comme j'ai pitié de toi, Mélisande, me pardonne-tu, Oui, oui. 
Arkel angrily re-enters the chamber and demands of his grandson what the he's trying to do. Are you trying to kill her? He asks. He then approaches Melisande and she questions him about the apparent coming of winter and she states how she very much dislikes that season. He asks her if she wants to see her child. And she says, what child? And he says, why, your little baby girl. And he brings the child to her. Her response is thus. Elle ne rit pas, elle est petite. Elle va pleurer aussi. J'ai pitié d'elle. She doesn't laugh. She's tiny. She's going to cry as well. I pity her. In this excerpt, we're going to hear yet another performance conducted by Désiré Ingelbrecht. This took place at the second Festival Claude Debussy at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées in Paris on the 13th of March, 1962. The two singers we hear are the lyric bass André Vessière as Arkel. In the 50s and 60s, he was one of the foremost interpreters of this part, and one can hear with his beautiful timbre, exceptional diction, and enormous compassion why this was the case. As Mélisande, we hear the French soprano Micheline Granchet, who was another favorite Mélisande of Ingelbrecht's. I don't know too much else about her. She lived from 1929 to 2013 and is yet another one of these improperly remembered but extraordinarily effective French singers from this period. Oh, 
Serving women enter the room and line the walls as if they were awaiting something. And sure enough, the death knell begins to toll and they fall to their knees. The doctor states, Elles ont raison, they're right. Melisande is gone. Arkel attempts to comfort his grandson. And the opera ends with the moving, pathetic words, C'est autour de la pauvre petite. Now it's the poor child's turn. In this excerpt, we hear yet another exceptional recording of this opera. This from the year 1981. It's the first time we've heard it. It features the conductor Armin Jordan, or Armin Jordan, as he's called here in Germany, leading the Orchestre National de l'Opéra de Monte Carlo with the Swiss bass François Lou singing the part of Arkel. I chose this version because Lou intones the words so beautifully and Jordan, Jordan, keeps the tempo moving so that you can hear those beautiful, unbroken harp arpeggios at the very end. Thank you for joining me today, friends, on this further exploration of an opera that has meant so much to me for so many years. Petite être si tranquille. 
My dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach. <laughs>